0: wish to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. Um, this morning I'd like to talk about a subject that we're all very familiar with, and in a way we would say that's why we're here this morning, and that subject is church. The subject as a subject that's been on my mind, and I've been drawn to here the last while, there's a lot of of uh, news about church goers, there's. I was reading a report here recently, or hearing a report here recently about um, Ireland. Uh, they were talking about churches there and the lack of the lack of authority uh, in the Catholic churches there. Of course, Ireland is known to be very Catholic, and how that church membership there has diminished so much that. That uh, it's hardly the, the religious landscape of Ireland compared to let's say forty, fifty years ago is hardly recognizable, and uh, the reason they're giving for this is infidelity with priests and so forth abuses, so that you know the church has lost its authority. Well that, that makes me sad when I hear when I hear uh, commentaries like that. Because that's not the way that church was intended to be. Um, I grew up in a church and I know many of you, most of you have too. My experience was a good experience. Um, church was a foundational part of my life. And I appreciated church in its different aspects. and today I still appreciate church. I appreciate it for what it does for me and my family and my extended family. And uh, I also appreciate the, be- the benefits, the eternal benefits that come with it. So this morning is going to be a pretty simple message, straightforward message. Probably not anything new, but just a reminder to us uh, of Maybe just one angle of a reminder of of what church is about. In Matthew 16, and we can turn to that. Let's turn to that, Matthew 16, and stand for reading this word. Here we have, in verse 13, starting with verse 13, we have Peter's confession of faith. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So their answer to him was, People are saying this about you. There's some saying that you're John the Baptist, resurrected again. Some Elijah, as we know, and Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, maybe Daniel. And then he asked them point blank, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You may be seated. So there's different ways of looking at this passage. This, is, this passage has caused quite a bit of, of turmoil throughout history. Some saying that Peter is the rock that Jesus would build his church on. And others saying that Jesus was saying that, that uh, Peter, you are a rock as Petros, a small rock. But upon this rock, referring to himself, I will build my church. And I'm not here to spend a lot of time on this passage. I don't think it's that uh, hard to understand either way. I think it's basically saying that it's understood that Jesus is the rock and that Peter is one of these living stones, as it talks about, that Peter talks about, that is part of the foundation of the church. Living stones, an apostolic stone, no doubt, but a a living stone and kind of the same as we are today if we're part of the body of Christ. Upon thee, upon this stone, I will build my church. Upon Christ being the cornerstone, us, Peter being one of the living stones, a very instrumental living stone. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we can tell here from what Jesus is talking, saying that the church is really important to him. Uh, he's he's got something in mind here. He's saying that there will be hell itself will be fighting against the church, trying to overcome it. And he's saying even the gates of hell, even hell itself, won't be able to overcome his church. So I'd like to go back into history a bit, and I've titled this message Church 10. because um, I'd really like to take a look at the foundations of church. There's only one Christ-ordained church from the beginning. There's been different eras. Some call it dispensations. We have the time before the Old Testament covenant. We have Abraham. God speaking to Abraham. Then we move into the Old Testament covenant of Moses. And then we move on uh, throughout that era until we get to the New Testament covenant of Christ. And of course, there's the final culmination, the fulfillment of the church in heaven that we look forward to. But where did it start? You know, I'm not one that likes updates particularly. I'm, I'm one of these guys I love. Technology in its place. I, I like for it to work fine and so forth, but I don't enjoy um, working the inner workings of technology. I, I don't. I don't like when something uh, becomes difficult or trying to figure out something or program something that's just not me. And so I would be very happy for there not to be any new Microsoft updates. Or at least if they do come, that I wouldn't notice that they come. They would just keep on. Everything would stay the same. So maybe Microsoft Tenno is going to be a, a much better platform now. We won't have to worry about all these. But, you know, as we look at the church, there's only one church, okay? it's It started one time. There's not going to be continual updates different ways. Uh, God does put within us, each, each one of us, Creativity, he's created us with that. But he's given us a reference point from Abraham to Christ, from us to Christ, of what church is about. The first references we read of church are in, or the congregation, are of the children of Israel in the wilderness. This is the Genesis 12 1 through 4 account, and you can turn your Bibles with me to that. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land, that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will curse them that bless thee. Uh, Wait a minute. I will bless them that bless thee. I'm sorry about that. And curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham did what? stayed around for another revelation. No, he departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 70 years and 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. I see here the the beginning of what we know of as, as God beginning the congregation of Israel. Uh, Abraham was called and he went. He's the seed of the Old Testament congregation in both the physical and the spiritual sense. In the physical sense, the Jews in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament, uh, quoted in, in John eight thirty nine. we read of, you know, what they said. They said, we be sons of Abraham. This is them making their defense to Jesus. You know, they were self-assured. Abraham was our father. And, and it... it, it underscores the importance they they placed on being part of Abraham's bloodline. And through history, as humanity tends to do, they relied on this physical and these promises of Abraham made to their ancestral father. And that they they looked to those for their blessing. But at the same time, they failed to truly value the real reason Abraham was chosen of God to be. The seed of his congregation, Israel. And that seed was, that was a spiritual value. God said, Leave. Abraham had faith and he left and he went. And <clears throat> God said, Give up your son, the son you've waited on for these many, many years. And Abraham gave up his son, his son he had waited so long for and whom God had promised to bless him as a great nation. It was for Abram's faith that God chose him to be the physical father of His people, and, I, and it's a given that God would have had the children of Abram focus on their ancestral father's faith and not so much on the blood flowing through their veins—that that Jewish blood uh, that flowed through their veins—that their father of their father, John the Baptist. The declarer of Christ, he, he said this in Luke 3, 8 to the Pharisees and the scribes. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able of these stones. And I don't know what stones he was seen, but he probably saw some nice sized stones there by the river side of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. God's able to take anything and make it part of Abraham's seed. So what he was saying, I believe, is it's through this faith that Abraham displayed even in his uh, faults that made, in Abraham's faults, that made Abraham such a, a, that made Abraham a child that God used, a son of God, God used for beginning the congregation of Israel. The ingredients to God's instituted congregation church, I use those two words interchangeably, I believe are faith and obedience. Faith. Being able to look to God and, and being able to really believe that He is and it is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And obedience, moving ahead in that belief. Without faith and obedience, there is no church or congregation of God, period. Without faith and obedience, there's no church or congregation of God. Just as the scribes and the Pharisees were not, the, were not acknowledged by Christ to be the children of Abraham for their lack of faith and obedience, even so today, people that profess but don't do, don't have faith and don't follow through with obedience, they'll not be acknowledged either. We have no promise that will be acknowledged if we don't have faith and, and follow through with obedience. Faith and obedience are the seed and also the, resu- the resulting fruit and fulfillment of the church. <clears throat> so what is the purpose of the church? Very simple answer here. And I think it's very full as well, and that's to glorify God. The purpose of the church is simply to glorify God, the creator, the sustainer. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, as it's commonly known, were brought out to be an example to all nations of God's work in their lives. To them were given the oracles of God, the Ten Commandments, commandments that are divine, and divinely blessed people or societies that, that live them. People or societies that live those commandments are naturally blessed because their creator who made them knows that if they work, live within that framework, things will go much better because that's the way they were designed to, to live. They were given the promises, the promised land, the promise of blessing if they obeyed. The promise of punishment if they disobeyed. The promise of a Redeemer, the Savior of the world. To them were given the promises. At that point in time, Jesus Christ came as promised. He was born of their family as promised. And in him was fulfilled all the promises spoken of from the beginning of the world. And spoken of by their prophets. It should have been a time of great rejoicing when Christ came to Israel. But instead it was a time fraught with angst. Because of disbelief. Because of disobedience. However, the children of Israel had brought glory to God both in their obedience and unfortunately uh, on their parts by their disobedience. Throughout the period of the Old Testament, all men could see by evidence of the Israelites that they God, that their God was holy and was just. And then with the new dispensation with Christ coming, the advent of Jesus, all men were able to see the most beautiful attribute of God, which is his undying love for his creation evidenced in his mercy, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The congregation of Israel had brought glory to God both, again, I say in their obedience and their disobedience. God showed himself powerful and true to his word when they obeyed and when they disobeyed. When Israel was right with their God, no nation on earth could be successful against them in opposition. What other nation could go after so many with so few and be successful? What other nation could cross the Red Sea on dry ground or cross the Jordan River and dam it way up, so the water went way up up river and flooded plains? What other nation could go around the walls of Jericho seven times and make them collapse? I mean, these were unprecedented uh, miracles and still are like none other. But when Israel was in idolatry and disobedience, she as a nation was as sheep facing wolves with no shepherd. She was despised when she was in idolatry. She was overtaken, nearly annihilated, taken into other countries, deported. One example I thought of was Samson. You know, his is kind of a singular thread there in the the work of Israel, God's work of Israel, that showed how God worked. When he let his hair grow like God told him to, he was strong. But when that hair was shorn, he suddenly lost all power. And that's, I think, a singular example of of how Israel was as a whole in in God's working. So Israel there is compared to a congregation or a church. And, And again, she brought glory to God through obedience and also through disobedience. With the advent of Christ, The finished work of the cross, which is the life and teaching of Christ's death and glorious resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the congregation is now called and enabled to bring glory to God in a much more effective way than ever in the Old Testament era. But we still have those same ingredients here, faith and obedience, that were particular to Abraham and to those that God called To be his his people, his seed. The seed of Abraham, he called it. Also the new Adam, he calls it. Or children of the new Adam. As we come into the kingdom of God, we become part of a a priesthood. We can find this in Romans 12. What does this mean? This means through the means of Christ's blood, we have direct access to the Father you now that veil of separation that we read of being torn from divinely torn from top to bottom in the holy of holies signifies that all people may now approach our Father God through the means and on the merit of Christ's blood that speaks to us and I'm going to say from heaven we we heard a wonderful message last Sunday about the blood that speaks to us from earth. But also, I don't think it takes away any from that to say that Christ's blood is speaking to us from heaven today as well. It speaks to us of, of greater things and greater opportunities than we ever uh, had before. And this is hitherto, uh, to up to this time, people could only relate to God through priest by coming and offering sacrifices and so forth. Now we have that divine connection. And from the time of the new covenant, God receives glory from his congregation on the basis of this blood relationship through Jesus Christ. It seems to me that God is saying he wants an organic organic kingdom, an organic church here on this earth. When I say organic, we read a lot about that today. Organic foods, organic campaigns. Um, we see campaigns taking place today that where people are using social media, trying to trying to gain votes by reaching out. They call it organically gaining people to their side. Well, in a much much larger sense, God wants this organic relationship with his people. He wants there to be a direct vertical relationship with every one of us here. Us reaching out to God. Me reaching out to God. You reaching out to God. And then us meeting and coming together reaching out to God together. And this is all for the glory of God. And as a side note, I'll ask this question. Why should God receive glory? I'll just follow up by saying, why not? As our creator and maker of the universe, it's very fitting for him to be glorified. Isn't it? When God receives glory, souls receive witness of the saving grace and goodness of God as well. When God receives glory, when we give him glory, other souls receive witness of that saving grace and the the goodness of God and they're drawn to the kingdom. Next question I have to ask asked this morning is a more personal question, and that question is, church for me? Is church for me? In face of of the scandals that have taken place here in the last while uh, with church-going people and uh, seeing the larger, how would you say, um, Breakdown in some church organizations. There are people that would ask the question, Well, you know, I want to be a Christian, but church just isn't for me. And in a sense, I can really understand where they're coming from. Okay, so if we're an organic, if God wants a direct relationship with each one of us, then why well, would you know, the larger congregation, the corporate congregation, be important. Because, you know, we're all relating directly to God. And yet, I think when we go that route, we fail to understand a really, really important element. And that is, is that God intends for us to relate together. That's part of what his sanctifying program is about. He wants us to reach into each other's lives. He plans to use his people to do that. He works through different people to reach into my life, see a need in my life, see a need for encouragement in my life, or repentance, and vice versa. God uses people, and that's his intention. We read about that in, in, uh, where it talks about the, the church being members, one of another, the hand, the foot, and then also the different offices of the church. And I'm not going to go there, but but there, there's a re- God does intend for there to be a congregation that meets together, that worships together. So, it's church for me? I want to go to heaven when I die. Is a song that comes to my mind. It's an old Negro spiritual. I want to go to heaven when I die, and and, uh, and that's what I want. I think if church is for us. I mean, if, if we want to go to heaven when we die, then church is for us. It's not saying that someone can't. There's no way someone can go to heaven when they die if they don't go to church regularly. But I, I would say that they're missing out on a great blessing that God has intended for them. And more than that, that there's a good chance that they could get sidelined, off track and And maybe even lose their faith because of just the lack of fellowship and and encouragement that God would intend intend for them. I believe the congregation of the saints here on this earth is the Christ Jesus ordained prelude of what our heavenly experience is to be. If you stop and think about it church and church organization, and Jesus, when he was on this earth, he didn't institute a lot of things that you might think of or that might come to your thoughts when you think of church as today. You know, Jesus didn't institute the school for a place to teach our children to have a Christian education. Jesus didn't talk about that. He didn't teach that we should have a gym building to for us to have our social gatherings in. He didn't teach us that we should have youth functions every week. He didn't teach us that we should have committees, hospitality committees, and welcoming and support committees uh, for expectant mothers and new little babies. He didn't teach that. He didn't institute boys and girls clubs or camps. He didn't institute school sales or fall festivals as a means to raise funds and as an opportunity for his church to work together. Jesus didn't say anything about all of these things. Maybe you find a place for that or maybe you know of a scripture. I don't, but I don't find that in the scripture, any of those. So, by the way, before I go any further in and maybe you lose the greater part of the message because you're thinking about these things, I will say that I believe in support in, in the above done in. If done so in the right context, these are functions that were created by our churches to fulfill the tenor of the gospel of Christ in our present society. But I'm bringing the, the, the above up to simply help us properly evaluate the congregation, the Church 1 the Church of Christ. I don't believe that G- Jesus limits us in our expression of love and service. I don't believe he says you can't have an organization. He, he definitely, you know, talks about organization and Paul talks about that. Um, you know, the, the church working together as a body. But Jesus does teach where to start and where organization should come from. And I think it's important that we stay focused on that or we run the risk of getting so caught up in organization that we forget the, the, uh, Basis of why we have organization. The start. Jesus, being author of the church, the church of which I'm speaking, the congregation of, of His own, defined by the bo- body and bride of Himself, His own body, His own bride bought with his own blood, brought to life by his own resurrection, directed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the creator and divine institutor of the church. What did he, and that's what's important and should be important to, all, to me and to all of us, what did he have to say about the church? So I'd like to read some scripture this morning as a way of, as a means of, of really uh, getting a little more insight Reminding us what Jesus had to say about the church, and as a qualifier, I will have to, I will say that I believe any New Testament reference to the church, of the church of, of uh, well, Let me back up. Any any New Testament reference to the church is the word of Jesus to us today. What I'm saying, if Paul said it, or if John the Revelator said it, or if someone else uh, in the New Testament said it, Matthew. Uh, I believe it's all the word of Jesus because he spoke through these men. So what did he have to say about the church? And what church should be like? Number 1 in worship. I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians 11:23. Paul speaking here. And here I see a focus on Christ, a focus on prayer, and a focus on praise. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me." For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks, the cup, drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There's a human tendency in our part, perhaps, to stay or to become too focused on this part of unworthy, this unworthy clause here. You know, we feel a little bit unworthy, so we don't take part of the Lord's death, of his breaking the bread and drinking the cup. But that's not what the Lord had in mind when he said this. You, You know, of ourselves, we're not going to be worthy and we shouldn't think that you know we need to somehow elevate ourselves uh, we should be rather we should rather be uh, focusing on the glory on glorifying Christ through this practice of communion for having made us worthy through his blood and and for continuing his sanctification in our lives his work of sanctification in our lives you know there is there is a Better way than to not take communion if we're not feeling worthy, and that's you know if we're having a struggle. There's a formula in James, and that is confess your faults one to another, um, pray for one another that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and I believe this is Christ's desire for for glory, not the omission of his ordained communion of the saints. This is one part of worship that I believe is really, really important. It's fundamental. It's the basis of what I believe is, should be known as Christianity. And that is the communion of Christ observed together in a corporate sense. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's taking part of the Lord's suffering his death. And then in Acts 20, verse 7, it also reinforces this how the apostles and how the early disciples, how they gathered. It says, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So they it was on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, they came together to break bread. And uh, then Paul preached a sermon till midnight. Well, maybe we should be preaching more servants till midnight. I don't know. But um, I do think it's important that we focus, look at what took place with these, how the early disciples did. And then Acts 2.42 says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There again we have the apostles following the apostles doctrine and also fellowshipping, breaking of bread in prayer and praising God and also selling all their goods, having an open hand with what God had given them and praising the Lord. You know, it was, it was a time of, of great, uh, how would you say, great multiplication in the church there and I believe we can have we can share in that sense of of uh, adding to those when we really really focus on Christ now I feel that in myself the need for just a more of a focus on Christ more of a focus on on uh, preparing myself for what eternity is going to be like And then there's the commission that we're given. And this is in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all men, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And what are these things that He's commanded us? Well, we have many things commanded to us. Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and so on. We have the, we have the uh, parables. Uh, we also have the commandments that He gave us how to literally worship. Acts two thirty seven thirty-eight says this. Now when they'd heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, repent of your own desire, of your own way of life, of your own past actions that were done in rebellion. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Show that you're really serious about your walk with the Lord. Be a testimony. And then for what purpose should I experience church? Church. And this is looking more into the future because I believe that's what we're made for, to be eternal beings. That's why God made us. We're eternal beings with physical shells. And one day these shells will be split open and we'll be known as even... we'll know as even we're known. We'll know exactly what God has for us in a so much clearer way. And I look forward to that time. It's going to be a time of great rejoicing for the saints. Revelations 5.9 says this. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. I don't see a bunch of isolated people here praising God. I see a congregation come together, voices united, uh, wills united, spirits united, praising God in the fullest sense, giving it their all. They're saying praise and glory. Uh, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And I believe at that, point, at that point in time, that point of eternity, if there can be a point in eternity, I believe that we will understand in so much fuller way than we could ever comprehend now what Christ has really done for us. Now we can understand in a sense what Christ has done for us by, giving us, by coming to earth, giving of himself. I believe then we'll understand it in a much, much fuller way. All creatures in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to who to the lamb forever and ever. Then Revelations 19.1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And I think today when I read these words, I think of these Christians that are suffering in so many places. Uh, I saw pictures of, of Christians, Christian women in Syria. And I've heard testimony given here of Christians suffering, having to run from the church services, run to the mountains because of persecution. You know, that's part of us. That's the body of Christ that's suffering. And I don't know exactly how to fully relate to that and to them. But I do know that I do know one thing. We're no better than they. We have no more right to not suffer than what they do Uh, in fact I believe that suffering could become a very real part of our lives uh, again but let's remember this this is what is written it's just it's true it's it's future perfect he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her He has judged the great harlot. And not only that, but his saints are gathered together as we read in Revelations. They're praising him for the deliverance. And the 24 elders in verse 4, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude in the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and he and his wife has made herself ready. So why experience church here? One is that God would draw all men to himself through the work of the church. You and I, in a singular sense, are a very small part of God's church. And he would have his church drawn together. And he would have his church draw other people to him. People that aren't saved. People that aren't part of the church. We know that. He would have us meet to worship Him, to pray, to praise, to observe His suffering, the commandments He gave us. And He created us social beings. There's no doubt about that. He created us for the, for the purpose of communing with Him, God, but also for communing with His creation, our fellow men. I should say, especially our fellow men. He made in Genesis, he made us masters, rulers over the earth. And we're to do that in a in a kind way, in a godly way. But also we're made to fellowship with each other as his special part of his creation, created in his image and for his glory and his honor. And Christ would have us prepare for eternity as well, for an eternity of praising and glorifying Him. You know, by us, continuing in the Apostles' doctrine here on this earth, I believe that we're preparing ourselves, our souls, for the eternal worship of the Lamb in heaven. I believe we're getting a foretaste of what Christ has for us in heaven. And I want to be among that throne, that, that throng of people by the throne that saying, glory be to God, glory to Jesus Christ for, for having given himself so freely for us. You know, I want to be among those that are looking for the scarred hands and are feeling, have felt his pain here. God bless us as we church, as we experience church, and as we as we uh, do what we can here on this earth to prepare ourselves and to be a witness to others for his kingdom that is to come. That has already come, really, but is just waiting for its revelation. God bless you.